we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Northern Power Women podcast for your career and your life no matter what business you're in Ah, the summer holidays are over, the central heating's threatening to come back on and most of us haven't got any leave left until Christmas but don't despair, it's here episode 15 of the Northern Power Women podcast it's the people who make a powerhouse I'm Sam Walker, hello What a spectacular time was had at the Tees Valley for this episode. The energy and optimism in the crowd at Teesside University was just infectious. I loved it. Thanks so much for being there if you came along. If you didn't make it, you've got a treat from a brilliant panel to come on this very episode. So brilliant, they inspired the title of the episode. It's people who make a powerhouse and the people in the Tees Valley are making a powerhouse. You'll also get to catch up with a one-woman powerhouse, the incredible Professor Jane Turner, OBE, hugely successful businesswoman and entrepreneur and now pro-vice-chancellor at Teesside University. She spoke with such passion about her role and also such incredible candour about her own personal challenges. I was judged pretty negatively by people at that time around that, therefore, how my life would turn out. Um, as a single mum and I think I just developed this burning inside that actually I will prove them wrong I don't know who the them were but people had views about how my life would turn out and I will go on and I will achieve things I have no idea what that will look like but I will never be in a position where you have the right to negatively judge me In Ask the Hive, you'll hear the plight of one woman that so many of us can relate to. How to switch off from the dreaded work email. You have some brilliant advice. I think one of the most important things is recognising that sometimes not thinking about business is good for business. But as ever, before we delve into all of that, it's time to look back and also look forward to everything that's happening at Northern Power Women HQ. All the news from our great leader, Simone Roche. Hello, we hope you've had an amazing summer. Welcome to episode 15. We had a brilliant time in Teesside recording the podcast this month. A big thank you to the as ever awesome Professor Jane Turner, OBE, for hosting us. She gathered a wonderful audience and uh, also a brilliant panel. So thank you to Caroline Theobald, Paul Berry and Angela Lockwood for really engaging in some brilliant conversations. Check out the video of a new digital marketing apprentice Christian put together on day one in the job, no less. So please have a look at that and you can see what goes on behind the scenes at the podcast. Nominations are now open for the fourth, yes, the fourth Northern Power Women Awards with our headline partner, Manchester Airport Groups for a second year. Thank you so much for your support. We urge you to celebrate role models from all genders, sectors, socioeconomic groups. We had a record 959 last year, so let's get shouting about the wonders of the North. This month, they also hopped onto the Northern Powerhouse tour bus and uh, headed over to Camelard Shipbuilders with Jake Berry, um, Minister for the Northern Powerhouse, last week. 
So cue a boaty boat face selfie, um, no less, while we're at the shipbuilders. Big thanks to Henry Morrison and Emma Green from the Northern Powerhouse Partnership for inviting me along on the tour. Um, I've been having discussions in the last week as well with the Minister's Office around gender equality commitments across the North, so we will keep you informed on what's going to happen and where we can get you involved. School's back and we've got some great events coming up. On the 11th of September, we're joining up with Noisy Cricket to talk about recognising women's worth in the workplace. So please join us at BNY Mellon for a great evening of debate, discussion and fantastic speakers we've got coming along to that. Um, I'll also be talking on a panel um, on the 13th of September as well um, about inclusive workplaces. So we would love to see you um, at that event too. We've partnered with Michael Page to launch a cross-sector mentoring program starting in October, connecting some of our wonderful power list with emerging leaders. Why not check out Claire Edington's Eddington's series of blogs? Join her with a brew each Thursday morning for Self Curious, a weekly personal development download and get the latest on how to get more done, forge fantastic relationships and generally unleash more of your most awesome self at work and play. Who doesn't want some of that? We've got Northern Power Futures coming up in November and we've got great support from Majid Majid, the Lord Mayor of Sheffield, who will be speaking, as well as brilliant support from Andy Burnham, the Metro Mayor for Manchester, who will be launching a new initiative at the event. So join us for Reverse Mentoring Live, career conversations, Snapchats and discussions on the future of work at Manchester Central. Thank you to EY, our headline partners, and Vodafone, our innovation partners, for helping bring this to life. We're working with the Greater Manchester Combined Authority and the Star Academies are helping us reach um, colleges and hard-to-reach areas to be part of the festival too. Get in touch if you want to know more. Hello at northernpowerfutures.com. And if you want to sort of read a bit more background as to where this all came from and why we're doing it, check out the fabulous futurist Maya Dibley's take on what Northern Power Futures is to her. We'll be announcing Newcastle dates and venue too for Northern Power Futures over in the northeast. Well, that's it. Please leave us a review. And if you've got any Ask the Hive questions, then please send us a voice memo, share it with us, and we'll throw that out to the Northern Power Women community. Thanks again and have a great month. As you heard Simone say, we'd love to hear any questions or requests for advice that you have for Ask the Hive or any feedback at all that you have on the podcast. Whatever the reason, just get in touch. Uh, send us a WhatsApp message. Here is our number 07928 387 712. That's 07928 387 712. Thanks. Right, here we go. Our host this month in the beautiful Tees Valley was the University of Teesside. And what a discussion we had, taking on topics of long career breaks, whether businesses need policy for sexual harassment, and whether the North East really feels part of the Northern powerhouse. I was so excited by this discussion, in fact, I forgot how to count. So you will hear me refer many times to episode 14. I, of course, mean episode 15. Please forgive me. Well, good afternoon, and what an absolutely spectacular northeast welcome from Teesside University this afternoon as we are recording episode 14. Woo! Yes, woo, of the Northern Power Women podcast. As ever, three fantastic panelists join us today, a whole host of brilliant audience members, and three questions that we're going to chew over. And I know I bang on about this every month, but this is, as ever, the start of the conversation, please. What we're about to discuss here. 
questions that we've got from you, suggestions made by you about things you would like to hear more about and discuss. So please, once you've listened to the podcast, tweet us at North Power Women, email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com, tie a note round a pigeon's knee, whatever you fancy doing, just get in touch because we would love to hear from you. So without further ado, please let us welcome our three fantastic panellists today. There is the wonderful Caroline Theobald. She's the chair, first face-to-face limited and Northeast Initiative on Business Ethics, honorary consul for Sweden, no less. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Caroline's passionate about entrepreneurship, education, opportunity for all, international working and good business behaviour, which I very much like indeed. Welcome to Caroline. Thank you. A big hello as well to Angela Lockwood. She's the Group Chief Executive for North Star Housing Group, which provides high-quality housing and services for 4,000-plus tenants across Teesside, including five women's refuges, a scheme for women with complex needs, and also a women's homelessness scheme as well. Thank you very much to Angela. Welcome. And last but absolutely not least, a big hello to Paul Berry, his managing partner for the Endeavour Partnership. Paul was born in Middlesbrough. He's lived in the Tees Valley all his life. He is a passionate advocate for his home and the people who live here. Paul, you are amongst friends. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you for being here as well. Right, I'm going to start with you, please, Caroline. And the first question we have today is so much of the dialogue around the Northern Powerhouse seems to be around Manchester. Liverpool, Leeds. Does Teesside feel left out of the conversation here? What challenges are you facing and what do you need? It's an interesting one, actually. With all respect to your day job, I think a lot of this has been created by the media. You just have to spend a bit of time in the Tees Valley, as you're doing today, among the fantastic people who have welcomed you here today to say that actually it's to learn that it's people who make a powerhouse and the people in the Tees Valley are making a powerhouse. I was in the mayor's office today and you could feel it. It's electric. There's all sorts of things happening um, all around the Tees Valley. It's why I've launched the If We Can, You Can Challenge here. I know that the university and the combined authority are leading on the Leap 50 initiative, which is um, to try and encourage the next generation of scale-up businesses. And with my business ethics hat on, the combined authority are thinking, yeah, let's make it. Let's make it a virtue, you know, with Angela and Paul's help of, you know, let's make the Tees Valley a place where, that is known internationally as a place that does good business. So, we may not be in the media conversations, mm-hmm. but everybody's chatting here. We just need to raise the profile and let people see what's going on. Is the money getting to you though? Is Westminster listening to you? If you're waving enough, is, is Westminster going? Yes, yes, we see you. We're coming. Or do you feel you're waving and no one's listening? Well, now, (laughs) well, now, there is a man, you know, who's a mayor called Ben Houchen. And Ben Houchen is a conservative. And Ben Houchen appears to have a direct line to Westminster. So things are happening. Greg Clark's up and down from here like a dose of salts. He's got all five of the leaders of all of the local authorities working together. This is a powerhouse. Positivity. I love that from Caroline. Yes, and woos. Angela, do you share that positivity? Do you feel overlooked here in Seaside or not? Um, not? Not so much overlooked, sure. We're one of the smallest ones. But, you know, there's something 
very helpful about sometimes being under radar as opposed to too much above the radar. And I think what Tees Valley do really well and have a history of doing is working really hard to produce results. And I think that's what we're doing here. I get the fact, I mean, nobody's going to ever compete with Manchester. I mean, apart from the fact that they've got a very broad portfolio of work. Tees Valley sensibly have decided to focus on what really matters here and are getting on with it. So, you know, would I trade in delivery for PR and media? Yeah, every day of the week. Could we do with a bit more PR and media? Possibly. Are we working hard to get it? Yes, we are. Is the more to come, of course. What more would you want? If you could wave a wand now and change one thing, what would it be? Well, I am from a housing background. So, you know, I, I build houses, affordable houses, social housing. Um, and the one thing that we're working hard to get is a really good housing deal for the Tees Valley area. Um, you know, we're into place shaping, place making, and that's a big um, priority uh, for uh, the combined authority, amongst all the other things. So for me, being very, very uh, sector specific, I'd like to see a really good housing deal where we get our money and we're able to do what we want with our money, as opposed to central government telling us what we do with our money. Um, we're not far away from that. I'm absolutely certain of it. And actually, we stand a better chance of getting it because of the combined authority than we would have done if we didn't have a combined authority. So so more work to be done, but I'm right behind it. So real positivity. Um, Oh, this is such an amazingly supportive place to be in. It's brilliant. And, you know, I started off by introducing you, Paul, about saying how proud you are of the fact that you are, you know, born and raised in this neck of the woods, wouldn't live anywhere else. Is it still a good place to do business? Absolutely, yes. Um, I've been here all my life, as you say. I've lived through the good times when people would emigrate into Teesside from more prosperous uh, parts of the country that we recognise today. So I've got friends who came from Essex, from Aberdeen, literally from all, all, all over the country who've moved to Teesside because it was the El Dorado of the 60s and 70s. Um, we're not quite the El Dorado uh, these days, but I'm more optimistic now than I have been for 20 years. Um, I think, as um, Caroline says, Ben Houchin is doing an absolutely fantastic job. Uh, the politicians seem to be putting their political differences b- behind themselves. And uh, Ben is liaising with government, and I think it's, it's great that, and it's helpful that we have a Tory mayor and a Tory government. Uh, I'm not quite sure what would happen from a political point of view if either complexion would change. But for now, it's working absolutely brilliantly. Um, and the combined authority have got their act together. Um, one of the differentiating factors between Teesside and other parts of the country is that we have got our act together. Uh, Further north, uh, there is some envy, I think, that um, the politicians can't actually uh, agree on how they want to move forward. Uh, But we have. um, And also we've got the the South Tees site uh, that is probably the most um, exciting uh, industrial um, project anywhere in Europe. Um, And that's going to come to fruition over the next 20 years. Um, there is a rival firm um, based in Newcastle that has opened an office in Teesside because they see Teesside as the place to be rather than Tyneside. And I think that says it all. <laughs> what you can't see was the little wry smile <laughs> that Paul just gave. Just a final point on this. What about connectivity? I travelled from Manchester today. Mm. Um, my train was delayed. I meant I missed the connection in Darlington. It's only 12 miles away. I had to wait 45 minutes for another train. Connectivity, you know, if we were down south, if we were in London, to get 12 miles between places, there would have been about 14 trains on the underground. Is that still an issue? Is transport still an issue in, in kind of facilitating business on Teesside? 
Uh, it's an issue for the Northeast. Uh, there was a piece in the Financial Times two or three years ago that basically um, uh, said that if there had been better connectivity between Teesside and Tyneside, the economies of both Teesside and Tyneside would, would boom and prosper. Transport is a problem. Uh, we've got a combined authority and a mayor with a transport budget. Uh, and I very much hope that he and the other members of the Northern Powerhouse are going to be able to sort this out. Anybody here uh, who, I'm presuming majority of you, if not all of you, live on Teesside right now. Do you see yourselves living here in five years? Do you see it as a place you will stay five, ten years? Anyone thinks they might leave? I'm Simone? <laughs> you realise people in Liverpool can hear this? <laughs> <laughs> she'll commute she'll commute she said um so do you is there a general consensus from the audience that this positivity felt by the panel do you share that positivity yeah. i'm lunging towards the back of the room uh this might take some time because it's kind of a labyrinth of desks here how do we even get to you is this i'm going past die hello die right hello yes let me let me speak to you okay um on that point i think the evidence that I can clearly say is that I went to school in Darlington I've been brought up in Darlington I've always lived up here um, and I can categorically say that a lot of people left they went to London they had the career that they thought they wanted then they're all having families and they're all coming back and because you can get high quality level of housing there are issues I know that they can get great leisure facilities they're good education you've got fresh out on your doorstep and it's I've seen it physically seen it that so many of my friends are now coming back and that's a huge and they're great ambassadors as well for the area and I would want to live nowhere else I'm really passionate about the Tees Valley. And with, and with those friends who are coming back with their young families, will there be opportunities for those young families when those young families themselves, when the young kids get to leave school and go to uni and move on, will they be able to stay here? That's a really important question and a point that Ben brought up at the last Tees Valley Business Club um, meeting that I attended is that he's highlighting the, the critical resource in, in careers advice and keeping young people here and allowing them to, especially women, go into areas that aren't traditionally for women or they're seen as men's jobs. For me, there is no right or wrong. It's just something that you're really good at. Um, And I I totally hear um, what Paul was saying on on the transport side. Ben is passionate about linking the areas together, about getting rail networks between Darlington and Teesside. He's he's really working on a national level to try and make that happen. So I think with careers advice, really helping to bring here and and helping start up businesses and and small and medium enterprises because the, ultimately they'll be the ones that will keep people here in this area thank you very much indeed great to hear from you and as i said this is the start of of the conversation as ever anything you'd like to add anything you would like to bring to the conversation podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or of course you can also tweet at north power women right let's march on to question number two and angela Now, this is just a conversation we keep returning to, not just on the Northern Power Women podcast, but I think in society, actually. Last month, the Parliamentary Women and Equalities Commission had published a five-point plan to deal with sexual harassment in the workplace. They say businesses are failing to deal with this. Now, we know from a Comrades poll this year, more than half of women and a fifth of men said they'd experienced sexual harassment at work. Of the women who'd been harassed, 63% didn't report it. Of the men who'd been harassed, 79% didn't report it. Victims kept it to themselves. Essentially, what can we do? What steps need to be taken by businesses to ensure staff feel empowered 
to report this behaviour. It's still going on, Angela. Yeah, sure, of course, it's still going on and has been going on for an awful long time, hasn't it? I mean, the Me Too campaign, campaign has brought to the fore. And let's be honest about it, it's been happening in Westminster, never mind, you know, anywhere else. So it's a big issue um, out there. And it's interesting because um, about six months ago, I said to my staff, and bear in mind that we've got, we, at the time, we had an all-female senior team. I asked to have a look at our sexual harassment policy. And actually, we don't have a sexual harassment policy. We had a bullying and harassment policy. And I kind of thought, you know what, that is not untypical of organisations. So obviously, you know, we did something about that and we, um, we, we drafted up a new sexual harassment policy. However, I also know that some of the best companies in the world can have a fantastic sexual harassment policy, but still have major sexual harassment going on in the workplace, do you know? Uh, some of the best um, equal opportunities policies are in organisations that don't demonstrate equal opportunity. So, you know, let's be honest, a, a sexual harassment policy is the starting point, but it's not the end point. And I think a lot of organisations think because they've drafted a new policy, well, that's it. We can all just move on with our lives and everything should be sorted by then. And of course, that's not the case at all. So, so what we've done in our organisation is not only have we drafted the policy, working with people in the organisation using best practice, we've also had a lot of training and development. And also our HR people have been trained to be very sensitive around the areas of sexual harassment. So there's a strong message going out that this behaviour is not OK in any way, shape or form for men or women. It's mainly primarily women who do suffer as a result of it, but not exclusively. And it's absolutely imp an imperative that you report. But we haven't had any reports yet. So either it's not going on or we're not doing enough yet. So our journey continues. And I think we're doing more than most organisations. Um, and I'd be very interested to know what the experiences of other people. Thank you very much indeed. That's really interesting that the policy didn't even exist. You go and check it out and it's not there. But you went to search. That's the difference, I suppose, where a lot of businesses, it might not even occur to them. Paul, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I think it's important for it to be easy to report so you can have great policies and great ethos. Uh, but it occurred to me when I was thinking about this question the other day, um, what if it's your line manager that actually is abusing you in a, w in a way and harassing you? Um, so one of the things that I'm going to look at and, and this question prompted me to do so is to basically make it very easy for people to bypass their line managers within my organization so that if they are suffering in whatever way and it's something that they for whatever reason can't discuss with their line manager then they have got a very easy route to know where, to, where else to where else to go um, it's something that I may be blissfully unaware of um, I'd like to think it's something that um, we're quite a small organisation, uh, we're less than 60 um, people within within the firm. Uh, everyone knows everyone else on a first-name terms basis. Uh, and I think that we have a very open and friendly uh, approach one to another, and we try not to uh, have hierarchies, and um, I, I try to be inclusive. So I'd be extremely disappointed if we if I discovered that we had a problem uh, but I, I don't want to be complacent. I want to make sure that if whenever there may be a problem, there is a very clear route for someone or multiple routes for someone to share their concerns so that it gets to me or to someone else in management. It's a very good point you've made that you said, you know, you hope you're not being naive because you see your ship as a very, very happy ship. And I suppose the difficulty is sometimes someone else right next to you might be seeing it in a different way. And other companies I've spoken to have said sometimes that comes as a real shock. So you're, 
your idea of looking at the policy as a whole is obviously incredibly important because you are aware that, OK, it's all right for me where I am, but what if? And that's, I suppose, what a lot of chief execs need to be asking themselves. I think that's absolutely right. Um, it's very easy, as I say, to be complacent, to think, well, it, it, it happens to them, it won't happen to me or my organisation. And none of us are immune. Um, it's down to the individual that you employ who is who may be a predator or who may have um, uh, tendencies that, that aren't um, particularly savoury. Uh, so we, none of us can rest on our laurels. Uh, we've all got to be vigilant and we've got to have structures in place and policies in place to make it mm. absolutely clear and easy for people to report and do something about it. Thank you, Paul. Um, Caroline, finally to you on this question. You work a lot with, with business, business ethics. Does this need to be something that's discussed a lot more. I mean, there's been some, I suppose, uh, there's been some angry reaction to the Me Too campaign. Actually, people think it's overblowing, you know, little things, things that don't matter. And actually, if we make it bigger, will it not make it go away in a, in a sense? The more we talk about it, the less pernicious it becomes. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I want to hook into both um, mm. what Paul and Angela said and indeed what Northern Power Women is about as well. And to do that, I actually looked at what happened in what goes, what's going on in Sweden because, um, as we know, Sweden's well known for sort of gender equality. But what's been happening then, but they have exactly the same problems with us in terms of imbalance, imbalance in terms of um, particularly in the techno in technology industries yeah. about representation in, in the workforce, particularly in tech. And actually, it's from the tech industries where there's only 21%, I think, of, of women employed that a movement, seven women got together to start with, not to name and shame. And I think that because this is one of the, the things I think that that made the Me Too, you know, subject to Chris, because you can get it wrong. What this is about is much more about pulling in collective voice to make structural change. So to try and, and, and they've made seven, they've met twice this year, well, twice actually within the last two months with the gender equality um, minister in Swedish government to say, right, well, what can we put in place here that will make that, that will bring about structural change. And there have been seven proposals. And the, the, picking up on Paul's point, you know, a lot, it very often happens with, with imbalance. So it's actually getting independent whistleblowers, finding people who you don't have to report to your line manager, but you take it outside. There's another route through. Picking up Angela's point about um, education, mm. um, get, making greater, greater education about what, you know, what sexual harassment is. Um, and this and zero tolerance, but not doing it in a finger pointing way, doing it in a way where, you know, this it makes, you know, it makes sense. So trying to do it structurally, which I think is very helpful. And if, if I've picked up what Simone and, you know, is trying to achieve with Northern, Northern Power, it's the same thing. It's something that's inclusive, that starts small and builds out from little from little acorns. Um, oh big oaks grow and so that it's something that people can get into because it's not about finger pointing everybody here uh, would you would you um would you feel confident if you were a victim of sexual harassment at work would you feel confident about a knowing where to report it hands up if you would know what to do if you were a victim of sexual harassment would you know who to go and talk to just under half i would say um and would you would you feel confident as well in being believed? So not just the practical thing of knowing where to go, but would you feel confident? Yes, I think my voice would be heard. 
Yeah, most of the people who said uh, they knew where to go. But interesting that most of half of the audience thought, well, I know I wouldn't actually know who to who to go and talk to. And that goes back, I suppose, doesn't it, as well, Angela, to the idea of having a very clear-cut policy, and as you were saying, Paul, as well. Thank you so much. Really interesting stuff. Um, hopefully, we'll get to the point we don't have to have that conversation mm-hmm. in the near future. But, you know, let's talk about it more till we don't have to talk about it at all. Good stuff. Right. Let's get on to question number three, then, uh, this afternoon, please. Now, this was very interesting. Uh, interesting, I think, if you're a business owner to hear this one as well. A new report says that career-obsessed workers, people who are just working, real workaholics, need more breaks. <laughs> and not just popping to the park or going to the gym at lunchtime. The advice being offered now by some experts is take months or even years off work Travel the world, go and enjoy yourself. Your job will still be here when you get back. Um, I suppose the idea is we're all working so much longer now. Why leave all our retirement till right at the end? Why not take some of our retirement in our 40s and 50s, then go back to work for 20 years and then we'll have a bit less retirement at the end. But we've done our retirement while we're still young and vibrant. Uh, interesting concept. Uh, let me... Who haven't I started with yet? I haven't started with you, Paul, have I? I want to start with you, Paul. Um, would you have done this? Could you have done it? Would you like to have done it? Um, I don't think I would, actually, because I'm, um, I used to be career-obsessed to the extent that I used to be a sole practitioner. I used to uh, look forward to bank holidays because I could work all day without interruption from <laughs> clients. Um, and then I was married and had a young daughter, and uh, I thought, this is ridiculous. ridiculous. My life is passing me by, and I'm spending all time at work. So I've developed... So I, uh, I don't think it would work for me sort of taking long breaks and then going back, but what's worked for me is basically getting a good balance in my life sort of having um, the balance so I can spend time with my uh, family, uh, who are now grown up, so I could spend time doing things I enjoy doing. Um, and clearly, when you have a family, you, you devote your time to work and family. You don't have much time for much else. Uh, but as your family grows up, then you can develop um, hobbies and interests that you had before, perhaps. Um, so a career-obsessed person, I don't think, actually would take that advice because they'd be too obsessed with their career. <laughs> um, but I think someone who's sane and is well-balanced uh, would live for the moment, would have a, uh, a fulfilling uh, work environment, but also equally have a fulfilling home and social environment uh, so that never, no one ever knows how long one is uh, on this world for. Uh, so I'd like to think that I've, um, if anything was to happen to me tomorrow, I'd like to think I've had a, a fulfilling and enjoyable life. We've gone very philosophical, haven't we, <laughs> for an afternoon in Teesside. That's lovely. Yes, you're right. You're right. Um, I'm interesting to hear, actually, Caroline, about you know your connection with Sweden, the kind of different attitude to education and, and society and work in that neck of the woods. Is this a more common practice in Sweden? Yes. Um, and the whole work-life balance thing is is far, far bigger. You, when, you, when you're at work, you work very hard. When you go home, you are absolutely away and, sw- and switched off. But actually, what I was thinking when I was um, 
You can see why we want to pull on the panel, can't you? Because he's just so lovely. Um, um, but the, um, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, I think that this is written, you know, in, in what I call what work used to look like. Mm. I don't think necessarily work looks like that necessarily anymore or increasingly it's it's changing. And because we are in the Tees Valley, I want to sort of um, shout out two quite well-known names from here. Visual Soft were very early in actually adopting this sort of, you know, take holidays when you want um, and far more flexible um, approaches to working. And Bethany Ainsley, who's an award-winning social entrepreneur here, has, she's also, when she, she goes around, you know, um, working with people, she says, look, you know, it doesn't need to be nine to five, you know, counselling them on different ways in which they can work um, in order to get... The, the the best alternatives for the people who are working there, but also actually it's the best for business because if you have people who you who you, you're working with them because it's people who do business with people, isn't it? And if you if you're creating a productive place in every sense of the word, um, the, the business is going to go up on a rising tide. Now that's much more actually like the Swedish model. And the the other thing is that much again in Sweden, it's extra, although there are patches just like here, but extraordinary gender equality. And I remember talking to some colleagues, senior colleagues at the embassy. She was number two, and her husband no, he was number two at the embassy, and his wife was sort of in a PR role. She got offered a brilliant job in America, and I said, "Well, what are you going to do, Pear?" He said, "I'm going to look after the children." Now, would you would you get that here? Not a lot, I don't think. But there's a real understanding that actually, men and women are are have a you know where, where there's opportunity, they they should yeah. be allowed. And, and childcare isn't seen as a lesser role no, either. Absolutely yeah. not. Uh, can I just, as an aside, say episode 13 of the Northern Power Women podcast is entitled Let's All Be Like Swedish Men. And you will find out why if you listen to episode 13 of the Northern Power Women podcast. There's a little teaser. Um, I, mean, I, I suppose, though, if you're, if, if you're a small or medium business owner and one of your members of staff comes to you and says, I'm going to take a year off because I want to go and travel the world and I'll come back a much more rounded, better experienced person and I will be dedicated to you, see you in a year... Is, is, is it not fair to say you might freak out <laughs> and go, I've now got to replace someone for a year and ah, or actually, is that just how the world is going to and should be? I think it should. And actually, if you think about it, if people are going, and quite rightly, people are going to have babies, they're off, you know, there's maternity cover. Why couldn't there be sabbatical cover in the same way? It's, you know, it's, it's time out, isn't it? And if it's going to be um, that time out is going to enrich those, those people they're going to bring something back into the business. I took three months off 18 months ago and took my children travelling for three months and homeschooled. Oh, that was hard. Um, but no, one of the best things ever. And I was in a lucky enough position being freelance to be able to do that. But I would recommend it if you can do it. If, if you can yeah. afford it. Well, exactly. It was, yeah, we're still paying that off, but never mind. It was great. We have the memories as we eat our baked beans. Uh, finally then to you, Angela, uh, do you see a time when actually the most healthy thing to do is take a bit of your retirement mid-career? It's, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? And um, I mean, I'm of the generation where you had a sort of three-stage career, education, work, retirement, um, and that was it. You know, there's, it was very linear. Um, and I have a son who's um, challenging all of that with me, and I just worry about his pension all of the time. 
Um, What's one of those? Uh, says the freelancer. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, but I'm of a different generation. But um, I think we're into eight stage types of um, career patterns, aren't we? That's the future of it all, whether we like it or not. And um, I, I actually get the fact that people. I mean, if you're born in 2000 in developed in the developed world, they reckon 50% of them are going to live to 100. So what does that then mean for society? And what does that then mean for the workplace? And what does that then mean for retirement? Because you ain't going to be able to retire with a decent pension at 65 because you need such a long pension then, don't you? So I get the fact that the order is being completely shaken up and I understand why it needs shaken up. Um, what I don't understand is how organisations yet are going to adjust to it, but I understand it theoretically. I think in, in, in my broadest, most liberal moments, I think, yeah, let's just go for it and let people do it. And then I go back to my chief execs role and think, oh, God, how will I, will I manage that? Um, and I think that's the dilemma that we're in at the moment. We're, not, we're in transition, I think. I mean, increasingly in our um, workplace, we do give sabbaticals. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you let a great person go off for you and come back? Because if you don't do that, you're going to lose them anyway. And actually, my experience is the comeback reinvigorated. The hardest part is holding that post open for a year. Um, and that's something employers have to get around. We have to get our head around the flexibility around that. So, yeah, let's let's go for it. We have no court hours at our place. You can come and go, you know, when you want, as long as the job gets done um, and you put your 35 hours in or whatever it is. So increasingly, and, and I never thought that would work. So increasingly, you know, we're becoming more flexible. Um, I think, what, give us another 10-year and we're going to have to embrace the eight-stage career. Why wouldn't somebody want to take a few years off and go and travel and come back and do it and do a job, then go off in another 10-year and come back and do it because they're not going to be able to do it when they're 80-year-old. So I get it. I get get the concept and I think we're all going to have to do some work on that. Anyone here? Has anyone here taken a sabbatical? Would anyone here... Yes, one. Let me just quickly lunge at you. (laughs) Uh, hello. How, how long did you take off and what did you do? I took a year because I got a bit confused with my kind of career, where I was going, what I was doing. So instead of leaving, I took a year and I did a year as a freelancer. And it was the best thing I did for the opposite reason. I realised that I was really gone mad as a freelancer and just doing an <laughs> office on my own went a bit crazy. And absolutely loved coming back and completely changed my tack on how I approached it. So it was the opposite way. But, wow. it, but the support so um, to actually take that sabbatical wow. was amazing. Look at that, if your employer had gone, no, then they would have lost out on you being brilliant and coming back. And that was Teesside University, which is brilliant. And by happy luck, look where we are stood now. Hooray. Uh, Anyone else taken a sabbatical? Would anyone else like to take a sabbatical? Take a year off, travel the world, find yourself. There's some nodding. No one's daring to put their hand up, though, because some bosses are in the room. Not me. Talk to me afterwards. One, yes. Are you going to do it? (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 but let me lunge to you. I'm lunging. Sorry, I'm lunging. I'm in the labyrinth of. Gosh, this is oh yeah, labyrinth of tables. Right, yes. So you'd like to take one, but you're not going to do it. No, I don't want to take one because actually in my career I've had five career changes now, okay. taken complete um, kind of left field decisions. Most recent one, leaving venture capital, moving into the charity sector. I did take a month off in between jobs, if that... Oh, whoa! There you go. (laughs) 
But for me, that that change in career and having the confidence actually to do that has been my refreshing and, and that kind of reflecting phase, if you like. Um, so for me, I, I don't need to. I get that buzz and that new energy and that lease of life and, and by meeting different people all the yeah. time and learning from them all the time. So for me, no, it's not a sabbatical, but it's about different life experiences yeah. and keep challenging myself, to be honest. A change is as good as a rest, as someone probably said once. <laughs> and the Northern Power Women podcast, of course, is a brilliant place to meet lots of different people, hear lots of different stories and experiences every single month. Thank you so much for being such a brilliant audience. Give yourself a round of applause. And of course, to our fantastic panellists, Caroline Theobald, to Angela Lockwood, and also to Paul Berry. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much if you were part of that terrific audience. And we'd love to come and visit you. If you'd love to host us, do get in touch. Just email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Now, this month's big interview is a woman who's got an amazing story to tell about refusing to be defined by some of the smallest minds in society and also refusing to be limited in being an entrepreneur by the fact she was a woman. Professor Jane Turner. She's a great businesswoman, pro-vice-chancellor at Teesside University and also the institution's gender champion. And I asked her what that role entailed. The gender champion role is basically to drive gender equality across the university in terms of our staff, but also our student population as well. So it's about 16,000 people in total that I'm responsible for. And certainly for the student population, it's about driving um, aspiration and ambition in our young female students, but also making sure that there is a quality of opportunity across the university as well. In real terms, on a sort of day-to-day basis, what little things do you do to make that happen? I haven't established myself as this formally, but I guess I'm a mentor. I'm a sounding board, certainly for uh, female colleagues in the university, but also reaching out to the student population as well, primarily through the students' union, and just giving um, people support and advice and guidance and encouraging them to be the best that they can be. And if there are things that are not going well or positively for them, it's about giving them the courage to go and change that and disrupt that and actually accept and hold the mirror up. That actually is not acceptable and there's something you can do about that. So empowering women to go and make a difference and to not accept. And quite often we get stuck in routines um, and also there's a strong narrative in the Tees Valley that is quite male dominated and for women and young women studying here they are immersed in that and so I quite often disrupt that narrative because I think that's my job as gender champion and through that disruption change views and perceptions and trajectories. So tell me about you how did you Jane born and bred in this neck of the woods went away for a bit came back tell me about your journey of how you started off on here because you you worked in your parents business didn't you when you were a teenager I did so I was born in Hexham in Northumberland and moved to Gisborough when I was three years old Uh, and my father worked in Middlesbrough he then set up his own business when I was about eight years old um, a manufacturing company so in holidays and at weekends I would work with my dad and as an entrepreneur you work tend to work seven days a week 16 hour days um, so I didn't see much of him so I saw him by being in the business as well um, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I left school um, uh, or indeed college no idea my brother had a very clear career pathway knew what he wanted to do and that worried me as a young teenage, teenager. And the career advice I, that I recall was basically I sat in a room, was given a big index, a big book with categories of jobs and was encouraged to look at the secretarial section. 
Um, and, you know, I achieved, I got my O-levels. I was in a, the top sets at school, so I wasn't an underperformer. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And at the age of 19, I became a single mum, which was, and I was judged pretty negatively by people at that time around that, therefore, how my life would turn out um, as a single mum. And I think I just developed this burning inside that actually I will prove them wrong. I don't know who the them were, but people had views about how my life would turn out and I will go on and I will achieve things. I've no idea what that will look like, but I will never be in a position where you have the right to negatively judge me. So having that burning desire and that drive to prove them wrong, but not knowing how you were going to do that and being a mother, that's pretty tough circumstance to find yourself in. What did you do? It is tough, but I was, uh, but I wanted to be a positive role model for my son. So that was the main driver. And then I guess I reflected back to the times when I felt most happiest outside of school, which was when I was working with my dad. And when they, when I was 16, they went on holiday, my parents overseas, and they left me in charge of the business for two weeks. Wow. So I was managing all of these uh, hairy arsed, you know, guys uh, with attitude and the bank. Um, and I loved it. And I just reflected back to that time and thought, actually, I really came alive when I was in that business environment. And leadership really caught my eye as well, because my dad had left school at 15, no qualifications, but he was an awesome leader. And it wasn't about ego. It wasn't about the trappings of wealth. He just genuinely wanted to do a a good job, deliver great service and great product and build a loyal team and he did that and so I was very struck by seeing my father as my father but my father as a leader of a business and I just wanted to go out and be a good leader um, and yes and this burning ambition to be a positive role model for my son. I have lost count of the number of completely awesome women I have interviewed on this podcast who cite their father as one of their major if not the most major influence in their career We need to have more conversations about that because a lot of the time we talk about female role models and I wonder if you had any of those as well, if you had any women that you could look around going, well, she is doing what I want to do, well, she is where I want to be. Was was that woman there for you? No, uh, it wasn't, but I was so internally driven and motivated. I don't think I was particularly looking externally either. I just knew that I needed to sort my life out and I didn't want to become... Because of the judgments around what had happened to me, I didn't want to expose any vulnerabilities to anybody else, so I just became very internally focused. But the backdrop being my dad was a great guy and a great leader, so if there's a role model in the background, it was it was him. And, then, and therefore I knew that I came from good DNA. My mum too is part of this, but particularly because I saw my dad in that, that leader role. So no, there is not, and I've been asked that question many times, there is not a female role model that jumps out, other than my grandmother was a school teacher, and when she got married in those days, she had to give up teaching. My grandfather, whom I never met, uh, died when she was in her early 50s, and she retrained and went back into teaching in, as a 53-year-old woman. And I thought that was pretty impressive. Uh, so yeah, in the background a role model there perhaps so as a young woman who had this this drive and this ambition and this great role model in her dad and that person who she could endeavor to be like were you accepted in that world of the cut and thrust of the business world or as a woman did people not take you seriously well what I did was I thought I'm going to have to get some qualifications here and I want some gravitas and some uh, substance to what I want to do so um I moved to London and I got married and then I had my daughter Harriet um three years later and then we moved back to the northeast. So when Harriet was two, I enrolled on an HNC in business and finance 
huge trepidation, thinking I'll never be able to do this, I'll fail, I'll not be good enough, all of those things and elements. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I had two years doing a, a part-time programme, studying in the evenings and at weekends, and I absolutely came to life. Um, I loved it. I thrived on it. I then went to do a degree part-time. I then went to do a master's part-time. And the lecturers that I came into contact with during that time, I, I remember thinking, there's no relevance here. They're, they're not practitioners. They haven't been there and done this stuff. And I've got some experience, I guess, of working in my father's business. I think I could be a lecturer and I think I could bring this material to life. So I got a part-time lecturing role. Um, and the confidence just grew over time. And then partway through that, I then thought, actually, to be taken seriously, I need to work for a blue chip. And a job came up at Orange Telecom which I applied for and was successful. So I went to work for Orange and ended up as their leadership specialist at Orange. And from there, my career just took off big time. Um, so I don't take any nonsense. So um, I needed to take myself seriously first, which I took the time to do and have the the foundations and the credibility for me that I then felt confident to go out on a, on a business stage and hold my own, basically. Anecdotally women aren't as entrepreneurial as men is a phrase I hear that they're not as willing to take risks as men are they're not as willing to put themselves out there or take no nonsense as men are has that ever been a fair thing to say I think it's a fair thing to say again I go back to careers advice and guidance and to what extent are young women and young girls encouraged to be risk takers and I think they're quite male the behaviors that are associated with that I think are quite male you would associate as male traits that's what I'm trying to say um and, and maybe for some women at the background, there's the, well, I, at some point I may want to have a family and therefore where does this, all of this risk-taking take me when I need to get serious and be responsible for a family as well? Um, but again, it's just about encouraging people to be the best that they can be and providing opportunities and there is no reason why there should be a gender split as to those who are more entrepreneurial um, or not. If we look at emotional intelligence, research shows that women are more emotionally intelligent. Arguably, to me, if you are an entrepreneur and you want to run your own business, emotional intelligence is going to get you a long way in that regard. Mm -hmm. So I think it's how we position and phrase what we mean by an entrepreneur um, to, to change again, disrupt that narrative. And I think about my education. I'm lucky enough to have received a really great education. You know, I went all the way through school. I went to uni. I don't remember a single lesson during that time in which business was ever even mentioned or the notion of ever being an entrepreneur was ever mentioned does this need to become do you think more ingrained in our curriculum from from day dot absolutely and and i think in our the way that we are structured in terms of our curriculum in primary schools in terms of the national curriculum i think quite often we squeeze the creativity out of our young children uh, and and arguably how do you get that back so I think it's an, it, it is absolutely essential that we um, nurture that and value that as a, straight, a trait within, within young people as well. But at Teesside University, what we've, we've made very clear is setting up and running your own business is a legitimate career pathway, regardless of your gender. And we will create the ecosystem and you'll be, have the opportunity to experiment whilst you're here to find out if that is a route that you want to go down at this age. And if not, you can park it and you may want to pick it up later mm -hmm. in life but opportunity for all and let's stop squeezing out the creativity of our very young people. You, you mentioned, Joan, about not having a female role model in, the, in a business sense when you were growing up. You know, you now are the only female pro-vice-chancellor here at Teesside University. You are seen as a role model now. Is, is, is there, is there a pressure that comes with that? 
I don't put myself on a pedestal. I don't see it as a pressure. I'm just passionate, authentically passionate about this space because I've lived it. And when people negatively judge you, that switches something on inside and it's never switched off. So it's a legitimate and it's just um, an unconscious behaviour now that actually I've got a job to do and I need to drive change for the next generation. And I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer last September, complete shock out of the blue. Um, And ovarian cancer is obviously a very female um, illness to have. And whilst I was recovering after the surgery, which was pretty extensive and I was still in hospital, my daughter brought me a book in, which just had on the front, your thoughts. And I was just jotting stuff down and thinking, actually, something very personal has happened to me as a woman that wouldn't happen to a man. My surgeon had said to me, there's something about the resilience of women in the Northeast, which I know because I've lived and grown up here. And that even, I don't know how long I've got, but it just gave me more fuel to the fire here that actually enough is enough it's time for change and I want to find like-minded people to work with me so I'm not on a pedestal I'm not any different to anybody else but I just think I'm in more of a hurry now than I than I ever was and for people who say we've made it more girls are going to university than boys in some areas of the world you look at you know there are more female lawyers joining than male lawyers in certain areas of the country at the moment the, the fight's over we don't need to keep fighting what do you say to that it's not but we haven't even started. I mean, yet more women go to university. Academically, they are more successful than their male counterparts. Yes, more women might be going into the legal profession, but how many of them are at managing partner status? How flexible? How are they supported? And I appreciate we're, we're pushing through generational a generational backstop, but hence the hurry, because we need momentum behind this and change and with the right people and men need to be part of this I'm not I don't hate men this has to be a joined up campaign they have to be part of this and those who get it and are the early adopters they're the people I want to work alongside with because they will help push through and it's all about disrupting the status quo and actually standing up and saying that is not acceptable anymore and that is not good enough and I will talk, if you don't want to work with me on this, then I'll go and find people who do. But we are, I will not be blown off course. And someone who does support you, Jane, was uh, a woman you met at a palace in London this year. Congratulations on your OBE. You were due to go earlier in the year, but you weren't very well, as you said. So you had to put it off for a bit. But hey, you got to receive it from the Queen. I did. And throughout my uh, surgery and my chemo, I, it was a light, a very dark tunnel. And the number of times I've said to my husband, I won't make it to the palace. And the number of times he said, yes, you will. So yes, I met the Queen, um, an awesome woman. I always held her in the highest regard as a role model. There's a role model. Um, and she asked me which university I worked at, what I did. And I told her that I was part of a group of awesome people driving a campaign for social change around women equality in the region, in the north. And she said, quote, unquote, and we need that, don't we? And I said, yes, your majesty, we absolutely do. So I am now being very open, saying the queen has said we need this. Um, So, yeah, an, an amazing experience. An absolute pleasure to speak to Professor Jane Turner, OBE. Thank you. If you'd love to hear from someone on this podcast, someone's inspired you, a mentor, someone you look up to, let us know who it is. We'd love to talk to them. Just send us an email, podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. So it's time now for Ask the Hive. It's a place where you ask for some career or life advice and the Northern Power Women Network responds. And this month... 
Ah, oh, it's so hard. The ability to switch off when it comes to work emails. I find it really hard to leave for the day before I've answered every email and I'm working longer hours as a result. I know not everything's urgent, but I can't seem to break the habit. Can you help? You're obviously a very conscientious person. What you should try to do then is look at the sort of emails that you're getting and responding to. Are these ones that you've been copied into and you don't really need to be having them? If so, press for an office policy on copying others into emails so that it doesn't happen. You should also press for an office policy on sending emails in out-of-office hours. And then, so that you can feel that you're going home, having completed something, give yourself something totally different to do in the last half an hour of the day. Good luck. Okay, so Tim Ferriss published a book years and years ago called The 4-Hour Workweek, and in that book... He, um, he described a process about only responding to emails in a certain period of time. So he used to do it in the morning for half an hour and an afternoon for half an hour. He had an out-of-office on saying, I will respond in this time. If it's urgent, ring me. The more you the more you respond to emails, the more emails you're going to get. Um, and it's like a never-ending cycle. So if you only have you know, a, a certain period of time, you're not going to be distracted by that. Um, and when I worked at Belfort BT, I um, implemented a no email Thursdays with my team. So what I did, I said to the, to the guys, if any emails came in, you needed to pick the phone up and talk to them. Because if you talk to people, there's not going to be loads of backwards and forwards and emails and misunderstanding, miscommunication, people getting irate because they've read things into emails that aren't actually there. So yeah, it worked really, really well. My advice would be to set yourself a half hour time frame at the end of the day to skim read all of your inbox to make sure there was nothing urgent before you leave for the day then stop don't reply to any of the emails sent after a certain time in the day they will wait till the next day I urge you to try this on just one occasion and see what happens See, I'm probably a terrible role model because I do sit on an evening and respond to things, but that's because I want to. Um, I feel like working in a business where we give people the freedom to do it or not do it, that's really important. So as long as you know what the guidelines are, then take it from there. But if people are struggling to switch off and they feel like they need to answer every single email, I'd probably just remind yourself, has anyone died? Is there an emergency? How important will it be in a month's time? And then take it from there. And if the answer to those things are no, then leave it to the next day and go and relax. So being a slave to the inbox is really bad for productivity and creativity. And it's got to be one of the major causes of stress in the workplace. Companies are now recognising that employees tied to their desks answering emails is not the way that they're going to create a profitable, productive workforce, one that's engaged and creative. And they're putting quite a lot of processes in place to tackle this. Some even um, banning internal emails or putting limits on the number of emails that are sent during the day. From a personal point of view, there's a few things I do to manage my inbox. So firstly, I put filters in place, making sure that I only see the emails that are actually important. Pretty ruthless about unsubscribing and turning off social media notifications. 
and also being ruthless about deleting, so scanning the subject line and deleting those that just aren't important. But I think one of the most important things, particularly given how technology has meant that we're always on 24-7, we're able to answer emails around the clock, and it's just not good. And actually, it's eroding um, meaningful relationships within the workplace. So what I try to do, rather than send emails, is actually go and have a face-to-face -face conversation or pick up the phone to people. And I think what I've found through that is not only is it reducing my inbox, but I'm building better relationships with those that I'm working with, my clients and suppliers. And I guess finally, I think one of the most important things is recognising that sometimes not thinking about business is good for business. Be disciplined with your day, and I certainly set myself a time. So I check my emails every morning for an hour, and then I'll check them twice more during the day at lunchtime and mid-afternoon and accept that actually at the end of the day it's okay if I haven't finished all the emails and most people wouldn't expect a response until the next day anyway. So taking a break and knowing when to switch off is a better way to be productive and focused at work than being a slave to the inbox. A piece of advice that I don't actually use myself but I wish I could would be to have two phones, a work phone and a personal phone and don't look at your work phone after whether it be six o'clock, seven o'clock but set yourself a deadline and switch it off, put it away. If you, somebody needs to get you more in your personal life at that point then your personal phone can, can be what you use. Again, such great, thoughtful advice. Thank you so much for being part of it. It really means a lot that you make the effort to get in touch. Now to this month's issue about an age-old internal battle. So I'm at a bit of a career's crossroads. Um, there's a couple of jobs I'm interested in and I was just wondering whether it's best to follow my heart or my head. So what's your gut reaction to that dilemma? Don't keep it to yourself, please. You can help her out a lot if you just get in touch and let us know what you think. You've got our number. Send us a WhatsApp message 079 There's 079-28-387-712. There's a little microphone icon next to the message pane. If you just put your finger on that, say what you've got to say, take your finger off, bam, your message will come to us immediately. Uh, or you can just record something on your smartphone smartphone and email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. If you want any more details about how to get in touch for us, The Hive, it is all about you. It really means a lot if you did get in touch. Uh, all the details are on the podcast page at northernpowerwomen.com. Thank you. So, as I finally get it right, this is episode 15. It's all over for another month. Thank you, thank you for being part of everything that we do. We'd love a rating from you or a review wherever you get your podcast from. And, of course, love to hear from you. Uh, anything you have to say, any feedback, most welcome. You can tweet us at North Power Women. The next episode, episode 16, uh, arrives for you on Wednesday, the 3rd of October. Until then, this is the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker, and this has been a What Goes On media production for Northern Power Women. Northern Power Women.